This episode of New Politics was released on the 2nd of December, 2023, and produced on the lands of the Wangal and Wajuk people. Welcome to New Politics. In this episode, the influence of Israel in the mainstream media and how that affects the reporting about Gaza. Bruce Lerman scores quite a few own goals in his defamation trial against Network 10. The appointment of the head of Home Affairs bypasses all the open merit systems set up by the new government. We look at the Murray-Darling Basin Plan. And is the Albanese government really in decay? I'm Eddie Djokovic, editor of New Politics. I'm David Lewis, hoping for the next Liberal Senate seat. And if you'd like to support New Politics, you can support us through a Patreon subscription, but whether it's a subscription or whether you just want to listen in, read our material online or buy a t-shirt or buy a book, it's all available at newpolitics.com.au and all of this is a good way to support independent journalism. been a big week in politics and it started off with the revelation that there's been over 70 journalists and editors in the mainstream media who have had trips to Israel paid for by the Israel government and most of these are from News Corporation and Nine Media and there's a few from the ABC and the Guardian as well. So it's absolutely no surprise that Nine Media has banned journalists who have signed an open letter offering their support to the Palestinian people and the ABC has also sent a warning to their staff about this open letter as well and this comes after the ABC sent out an edict banning the use of genocide and apartheid in their reporting about Gaza and Israel and this is all in response to an open letter generated by the journalist union, the MEAA, and it's essentially to show solidarity with the journalists who are covering the war in Gaza. And over 55 journalists have been killed so far in Gaza, and quite a few of those have actually been targeted by the Israeli Defence Force. And they're expressing their outrage over the killing of over 15,000 Palestinians and wanting the mainstream media to hold to the principles of journalism which are, of course, holding power to account, adhering to truth rather than the syndrome of both sidism, being able to report freely and accurately, being able to report on war crimes, genocide, ethnic cleansing and apartheid, and reporting on the growing anti-war sentiment in Australia. And since this conflict restarted on October the 7th, and I made this point that the war in Gaza didn't commence on October the 7th, it's actually been going on since 1946, but there's been a clear pro-Israel bias within the media reporting in Australia, and democracies do have to be set up or based on free and fair reporting by journalists. And if you're setting up the rules for what can and cannot be reported, or if you're banning journalists for signing letters condemning war crimes, well, it's not a sign of a free and open media environment. We need to be perfectly clear. Criticising a government does not imply that we are anti-Jewish or anti-Islam or even anti-the state of Israel. Those are completely different issues. And I think it's terrible the way that the current Israeli government is trying to use things like anti-Semitism as a way of shutting down debate and criticism of them. I condemn anti-Semitism. I condemn anti-Arab. I condemn anti-Muslim. I condemn Islamophobia. Bad people come in all backgrounds. 
people who we disagree with come with in all backgrounds. There's been a fair bit that the Hamas party has done that has been rightly criticised. The Hamas party is not all of the Palestinian people. There's been a lot that the Israeli government has done. Israeli government is not all of the Israeli people, and it's not all of the Jewish people in the world. That the Israeli government pays journalists to go over on basically enhanced holidays is not unusual. A lot of governments do that for a whole range of reasons. Russia did it all the time during the Cold War. Bring over some soft journalists, show them the good parts of Russia, keep them away from the bad parts of Russia, send them home. And then you'd get an article, oh, people are happy in Moscow. I went and visited this place. And by Russia, I mean the USSR. Didn't make it right then, doesn't make it right now. Of course, trade conferences and expos and, and all of those types of things are another way of getting soft press. And look, that's fine. You have the right to spend your money on how you wish. I'm sure Australia brings over people from other nations to try and, you know, look, look at the great trade we can give you. In itself, it's not a bad thing. But when you're a political journalist or a business journalist, you should be above this type of stuff. I have noticed on some of the social media, a journalist got up and said, yes, look, I, I went to Israel at their extent, but I've been extremely critical. And sure, good on you. That's great. So you should, all of that. But as was pointed out, it's not just what you do, it's how it's perceived. There's a very loud Zionist lobby in Australia. It's not large, but it's very loud. And that taints everything. So when they talk about anti-Semitism, you have to think how much of this is, are they making up? And how much is genuine? If it's genuine, yes, must be stamped out. There's that kerfuffle in the Sydney Theatre Company where a couple of the cast came out in the kefiats. There was then a rather loud letter-writing campaign from Jewish people saying, hold on, we're part of this too. Now, fair point, but I wonder how much of it was genuine. People worried that they're going to cop some blowback that they don't deserve and how much of it was from the loud Zionist lobby that has a lot of influence here. Well, there has been an outrage about these actions of Nine Media and the ABC, but as far as I'm concerned, it's actually good that this information has been coming out for everyone to see, and we can now see that this is how the Israel government tries to influence the media reporting, not just in Australia, but also in the United States and in Britain as well, and I'm sure that it does it in quite a few other countries as well. And the Israel lobby does have substantial influence in the Australian media, and we had those incidents back in 2014, and that was another time when Israel bombed Gaza, and the journalist Mike Carlton was essentially forced to resign from the Sydney Morning Herald, and a cartoon by Glenn Lelivre was removed because the Australian Jewish Association claimed that it was offensive. And at the same time, there were a wide range of anti-Palestinian cartoons and articles that were published at the same time that were equally as offensive. And no one in the media ever thought about removing those or claiming that they were offensive. So we can see that there are these double standards when it comes to reporting on Israel and Palestine, and Israel doesn't pay for these journalists to just to go to Israel because they like them or just wants to throw their money away or give them free falafel or whatever. Hey, look at all this corruption. We want you to report on it. It doesn't work like that. It expects favourable treatment in return, and quite a few current journalists in mainstream media have been on these junkets paid for by the Israel government. Bevan Shields, who was the editor at the Sydney Morning Herald, Lenore Taylor at The Guardian, and if that's what they want to do, that's their business, but it 
does need to be disclosed and it never is. And last weekend, three of the four panellists on the Insiders had travelled to Israel on one of these media trips paid for by the Israel government and that wasn't disclosed. But here's some of the commentary from the Herald Sun's James Campbell. Does anybody really think, though, that refugees from the Ukraine were potentially security risks the way people from Gaza are. It is also an unfortunate truth that they are unlikely to hold sanguine views about Jews. We've seen from the recent behaviour from people in crowds in Australia, people don't leave those sorts of attitudes when they hit the check-in. So James Campbell is one of those journalists who has been given a free trip to Israel and I think that this is one of the big problems in Australian journalism and it's totally distorting and compromising the process of journalism and for me it's not too different to the cash for comment scandals from 1999 when Alan Jones and John Laws were paid to make favourable comments and editorialise about Telstra and a range of other corporations without anyone knowing that they were paid for it. And the other point is, how would we feel if Russia was paying for journalists to be re-educated about their perspectives about Ukraine and not reporting on the conflict over there? We'd be outraged about that. So I think this is an outrageous situation and it does need to change. Declaration. Again, governments may pay. The New Zealand government might pay for Australian journalists to go over to report on good news to do with exports. Okay, that's fine. You're hardly going to come back with controversial and divisive opinions, or you'd hope not anyway. On the whole, it doesn't hurt. But nonetheless, you still should declare. I was sent to Tel Aviv to meet up with the foreign minister and some other people, and there was a nice dinner, and they paid for the airfare. They paid for my accommodation, which was in such and such hotel, and I was there for 10 or 15 days. Well, that generally does happen with travel journalism. As it should, too. Otherwise, this beautiful place, and turns out you stayed there for free, and getting free accommodation, no matter how jaded you are, does tend to warm you a little bit to the place. But it should be with political journalism, too. Again, I don't know that the journalists should refuse to go, but they should declare who's paid for what, just so we can then balance. Well, hold on. He's had lunch with so-and-so and and this person and that person, and it was a friendly lunch, and it costs so much. How much is that going to balance the story? And it might force people to be a little bit more critical, saying, well, yeah, it was nice, they put me up, but I'm still feeling uneasy about this and that and this, and that's... That's the risks that the government paying, whether it be the Israeli government, the American government, the Russian government, they should be aware that if they're paying for Australian journalists, they're not paying for a soft story. They're paying to access to Australian journalists. Probably in the past, there was a case that this was happening, although I think it's always been quiet junkets and don't tell anyone and hush hush and just write the positive story. But if it went back to that, there may be a lot less free junkets, but we might just start to move towards having a better media. Well, for me, it's also that issue of double standards and having different treatment for different situations because Australian journalists also signed an open letter to support journalists in war zones and a commitment to fair and honest reporting in Ukraine almost two years ago. And they also denounced the actions of Russia and President Vladimir Putin. But the ABC and Nine Media, they didn't make a fuss about that at the time or ban journalists from reporting on Russia and Ukraine or censor them about the use of words genocide or war crimes. But since 
Russia invaded Ukraine and commenced the war almost two years ago, the ABC and Nine Media have published many articles accusing Russia of war crimes and using the word genocide to describe what was happening in Ukraine, as did the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age. And in Ukraine, there have been many massacres that have been rightly identified as potential war crimes. And of course, it should never be a case where we say that different acts of war should be more deserving than others. But if there's war crimes being committed by Russia in Ukraine, then it's right to claim that Israel is also committing war crimes in Gaza. And if it's okay to accuse Russia of attempted genocide and of ethnic cleansing, well, it should be okay to accuse Israel of doing the same in Gaza. Because to me, what Israel is doing in Gaza does look remarkably similar to attempted genocide. It does look like ethnic cleansing, and it does look like war crimes are being committed. And being an editor in Sydney in a failing media outlet and telling your journalists not to report on the truth... As far as I'm concerned, that's a failure of journalism. And I think the public generally is beginning to see right through this type of behaviour. I think the public is. I think social media is a big part of it where you can see things happening, where you get a much wider range of opinion. Now, that in itself can be problematic, but I think it's better to have the wider range of opinion and then teach people how to think properly critically, you know, how to ignore confirmation bias, et cetera, et cetera how to weigh sources, how to look at who is talking to you. And even just because you disagree broadly with someone doesn't mean they're wrong on that instance. And just because you agree with someone doesn't mean they're always right. I think the Israeli government has overplayed its hand and it's lost, well, all of the Middle East, which it never expected to get. But Europe, it may have the Australian government. I live in, a, in an area with a large Middle Eastern population or people of Middle Eastern origin population. So I see a lot of Palestinian flags. I think, though, that particularly with younger people, the propaganda that worked since at least 1948, definitely since 1967, isn't cutting through in the way it used to particularly with younger people. So we may be seeing a change in how these things are done. And of course, when it gets down to it, it's Netanyahu trying to avoid being arrested for corruption. These types of things are the desperate measures of a cornered rat. And Hamas too are in a minority government and are not particularly beloved by the Palestinian people. So we're really seeing the loss of innocent lives and on both sides. However, disproportionately, there's there's still been Israeli innocent people killed over small domestic politics and the world on the brink of, of a war because Bibi Netanyahu is a crook and because the leaders of Hamas are essentially crooks. And this is the great tragedy. And there has been a ceasefire in Gaza, and that's the ceasefire that Australia abstained from voting for a few weeks ago, and essentially the ceasefire this time around was for four days, and it was extended by another two days, and now it's being extended by another two days, and there is hope that it will become a permanent ceasefire. Here's the Secretary-General of the United Nations, Antonio Guterres. It's a glimpse of hope and humanity in the middle of the darkness of war. And I strongly hope that uh, this will enable us to increase even more uh, the humanitarian aid to the people in Gaza that is suffering so much, knowing that uh, uh, even with that additional amount of time, 
it will be impossible to satisfy all the dramatic needs of the population in Gaza. I am sincerely hopeful that it will be possible to have uh, other crossings because they will facilitate uh, the uh, distribution and that will also facilitate the control by the Israeli side. So I'm very hopeful that this will happen. So there's still a long way to go on this, but this has been a brutally one-sided war and we're not suggesting that Israel hasn't suffered at all, but the civilian casualties have been totally disproportionate. Over 15,000 Palestinians have been killed since October the 7th and 1,200 Israelis. And War should never be just a comparison of statistics and numbers of deaths, but 12 times more Palestinians have died, and plus there's a humanitarian crisis in Gaza. And even though there's still a long way to go in this conflict, there has been larger public outcry about the war internationally than there might have been in previous wars and conflicts commenced by Israel in 2008, 2014 and 2021. And we can never say what sort of influence this might be having, but there's certainly a greater awareness of what's going on with Palestine and a greater sense of outrage about what's been happening there. The controls of the mainstream media, the filters they used to have on where where the story could be controlled, are dissipating and, and even dying. I think we're in the middle, and that's why we can't see it, but I think we're in the middle of a major revolutionary change in how politics is done, how media is done, how communication is done. I don't think it's got that much to do with social media. Social media is a part of it. Well, it's got to do with social media insofar as the information gets disseminated from a lot more areas. I think it's the internet, more so in general, that you can access the world news, that you can access alternate news sources. Part of this is social media, but I think that's only a part of it. I think, too, we have major parties all throughout the Western world anyway in their death throes, not just electorally but philosophically. The Conservatives and Labour in Britain are dying. The Republicans and the Democrats in the United States are dying. They might still have positions of influence, but it's their membership numbers, it's their lack of engagement with broader society, it's the overwhelming disillusionment with people outside of them who would vote for them. And the same can be said here for Liberal and Labour. Whereas Palestinian people had normally been presented as terrorists and radicals and maniacs who were in a place they shouldn't be, this narrative is breaking down very quickly. Even with people who may not like the notion of Palestine and think that Israel deserves more. Of course, that's not everyone in that position. I should be very clear on that. And the notion, too, that Israel was given to the Jewish people, inverted commas, trademark, copyright, all of that, by God, and that we're pushing in the end times. If we are pushing in the end times and not going how the prophecies of Daniel and Revelation said they would, and I think that's important to recognize too that you know it's almost as if basing something on blind faith isn't that great an idea you know shoot me down in flames but i think we're seeing revolutionary but quiet changes almost analogous really to the industrial revolution in that while it was happening nobody realized but at the end of it people looked back and said oh holy cow look at what just happened over the last 50 or 100 years the change I don't think will take 50. It might take another 15 years. We might have another few electoral cycles to go through to see the, the damage. 
And so when it gets to Gaza, the propaganda war has to change for the propagandists. And that there's a ceasefire currently is actually a wonderful thing, and I hope that they can keep it going permanently. And Australia and the other countries who abstained must be feeling conflicted. Well, I think some of that change has been leveraged by social media. Not all of it, of course, but some of it has been leveraged. And you referred to those younger demographics before, and I think that they're actually going through a new phase of social media engagement. And Twitter was pretty much a new mode of reporting the news during the Arab Spring of 2011, and that was 12 years ago, and also what was going on in in Iran at the time. And in the same way, I think it, it is social media, but it's probably TikTok and all of these other new medias that have been a media avenue in 2023 and also being able to give a different perspective compared to what they might ordinarily see through mainstream media. And generally, there is a feeling that these younger audiences, they're generally not accepting the propaganda that has been fed to audiences about Israel over the past 40 or 50 years. And of course, propaganda is produced by all sides during a conflict. There's that phrase again, all sides. But based on what they can see, their opinion is that Israel is practicing apartheid. It is attempting genocide and is likely to be committing war crimes. And there's also generally a feeling that international action, and it's not all because of this, but it is being promoted by the Gen Z and millennial demographic. And this is also now influencing other demographics as well. But whatever the case is, there has been a sizable shift in popular opinion about Israel and Palestine, not just in Australia, but all over the world. And that might be something that forces a major shift in Middle East politics into the future. The other thing too, and and you're absolutely right, and the other thing too is our reliance on oil is starting to diminish. And once we don't need oil in the quantities that we need it now, the whole state of Israel becomes a lot less important to the United States and to England and to those countries that need Israel as a stabilizing force in the Middle East. And we're not going to stop our dependence on oil. It's not just motors that use oil. That's a large part of it. Plastics, for example. So it's not going to this time next year. We'll still be using oil but we'll be using slightly less of it and that will shrink exponentially our use of it. And there must be people in the right position to realise this. And this week we also had the United Nations pass a resolution for Israel to withdraw from the occupied territories in Golan Heights and Australia was one of the eight countries that voted against this with 91 countries voting for the resolution and Australia has consistently supported this idea of the two-state solution for Palestine and Israel and they've been telegraphing that consistently over the past seven weeks and Golan Heights is to do with Syrian territory that Israel is occupying but it is seen as a precursor to Israel's withdrawal from the West Bank and the implementation of the two-state solution. But My feeling is that this just shows that there's a large gap between what Australia says it will do and what it actually does do. And it could have shown its credentials on the two-state solution by doing something about other territories that Israel is occupying, but failed to do that. So, of course, that's an issue to consider. But at least Australia has granted 860 temporary protection visas to Palestinians. But even that is not allowed to be uncontentious in Australia. With all of the fear and loathing being ramped up by the coalition yet again, here's the Shadow Minister for Home Affairs, James Patterson, and we'd just like to let everyone know that he has been on one of those paid-for Israel study and re-education travel trips. 
There's a whole reason that we should be really concerned about this. There's a whole lot of red flags that we should mm-hmm. be worried about this. The Australian government has no presence on the ground in Gaza, obviously. There is no functioning state or government in Gaza to the extent it is. It's run by a terrorist organisation. I am really worried that corners have been cut here, that these visas, visas have been issued without appropriate scrutiny. And even if every single one of these people is a completely innocent civilian, genuinely applied, uh, we have to be really careful about the attitudes that we'd be welcoming into this country and the consequences for social cohesion in this country. And what he failed to mention was that there are 1,760 temporary protection visas being offered to Israel citizens as well. And no one from the coalition is complaining that these might end up being radical right-wing Zionists who also might have consequences for social cohesion in Australia. But it's just this monotonous and predictable process. And this is the end result of having all of this largesse provided by the Israel government. Politicians such as James Patterson will say that everything about Palestine is terrible, everything about Israel is brilliant, and do the lobbying on behalf of the Israel government. But I think that there are limits to this sort of lobbying, and it might be a case where these limits have actually been reached. I said earlier that the Israeli government had overplayed its hand and we're starting to see the results of this. But they're losing the public support. And once you've overplayed your hand, it's very hard to get it back. You're best asked to reshuffle the deck. But of course, reshuffling the deck will put Netanyahu into a position he doesn't want to be in. So they've just got to now, I guess, to keep the gambling double down and hope that they can pull something out of the thin air that will help them. But that's getting less and less likely too. You're listening to New Politics. You can subscribe to us on Apple or Google Podcasts, listen through Spotify, YouTube, SoundCloud and Amazon Music. Or you can find us at newpolitics.com.au and you can now support New Politics through Substack and Patreon. been another defamation trial where the litigant has scored numerous own goals and that's the defamation case of Bruce Lerman versus Network 10 and for all of those legal eagles out there all the evidence is available online and it's fantastic including what Lerman's office looked like when he was working in Parliament House in 2019 but it has been a fascinating case and remembering that this is a civil case and not a criminal case and the allegation is that Network 10 defamed Bruce Lerman, when they broadcast an interview between Brittany Higgins and the journalist Lisa Wilkinson. And it's been a brilliant trial so far. So much material is being uncovered and so much new material is being introduced compared to what was revealed by the Australian Federal Police in the Bruce Lerman trial late last year when it was alleged that he sexually assaulted Brittany Higgins at Parliament House in 2019. And that trial was aborted and that means that it's the same result as though the trial never actually happened and never existed. But a criminal trial that was so sloppily managed by the Australian Federal Police There's the research material that was supposedly tainted by a jury member, and we'll never know if that was actually true or not. Yet a civil trial, which doesn't have the same consequences, is far more organised and professional. And it just makes you wonder how terrible and compromised the Australian Federal Police must have been in that case. 
apparently Bruce Lemon has two senior uh, barristers and two junior barristers. How they wouldn't tell him that every single part of this case will be brought up and that the defence counsel, who, by the way, are being funded by very deep American pockets, I suspect deeper than Bruce Lerman's pockets, we don't quite know who's funding him. I know there's a lot of speculation out there. It's unlikely it's himself using his own funds. But Channel 10 is owned by a conglomerate that includes the American broadcasting juggernaut CBS. And this is small bickies to them. So how Bruce Lerman's defense didn't seem to have warned him that they will be going through everything you have said and done in the past, both public and private. And it looks like News Corp have decided to pile in after he stabbed them in the back by releasing a video of him singing a song not terribly becoming to his character while high on cocaine, it seems, or, or, or drunk on alcohol or maybe both, it seems. Allegedly, he's made a ton of enemies. To call it a train wreck, I don't think is quite... Because a train wreck is a thing of interest and logic, in a sense. You watch it because it's compelling. The Lerman testimony was chaotic nonsense. He lied about lying about lying, which is a level of truth-telling that George Costanza would just marvel at. (laughs) Well, it's been quite a stunning performance. You know, it has been shown that Lerman lied prolifically, as you mentioned, David, and he was happy to admit that he was lying to different people within Parliament House. He lied to his chief of staff. He lied to Minister Reynolds. He lied to security staff. He lied to the Australian Federal Police, and he gave different versions of events to different people, and all of them were untrue. And Sometimes you just wonder, well, what's going on in the minds of these people? You know, Bruce Lerman is the one who brought on this case. And this is about as good a legal shellacking as you'll ever get in the court of law. And it might actually be better in TV dramas, but in real life courtrooms, this is about as good as it gets. And it's very similar to the case of Ben Robert Smith, where he had all of those adverse cases against him and then decided to take nine media to court over defamation and That ruined his career even further and ended up with substantial legal costs and damages to pay, or at least Seven West Media had to pay all of those costs and damages. And it looks like Lerman's defamation case is going to go down in flames. And just like Ben Robert Smith, Lerman has received a lot of financial support from Seven West Media. And there are now questions about whether Kerry Stokes should be holding a media licence. He's using this money and clout to support Ben Robert Smith. He was shown to be a serial womaniser and now there's support for someone else who is facing another trial for sexual assault. And he's also got his Manchurian candidate as the Lord Mayor of Perth, Basil Semplis. And it seems that Kerry Stokes has just got far too much influence and far too much money behind the scenes. And that's something else that probably needs to be looked at as well. It's clear that a lot of this stuff is to protect the public persona of Kerry Stokes. It's pretty clear that Bruce Lerman will be like Warren Mundine. Second, their usefulness is finished, they're disposed of. And Lerman, it seems to me, and I think to others, he's not this special, highly qualified CIA, MI5, ACES spook. He's a nobody who got caught in a situation where they saw an opportunity that the media and probably then elements of the Liberal Party could jump on the notion of woke culture wars and how men are so badly looked behind and okay we tried it with Christian Porter and that didn't work then we tried it with Ben Robert Smith and that didn't work 
but this time for sure, you know, Rocky and Bullwinkle. And somehow he seems, well, he is less impressive than Christian Porter and Ben Robert Smith. And that's saying something. They're not, neither of them are terribly impressive. With Ben Robert Smith, I think part of it was protecting the Victoria Cross and the reputation of the Victoria Cross. Christian Porter was a Liberal member. Now, Bruce Lerman was working for the minister. And instead of them doing the right thing, they panic and try and cover it up, which just means when it comes out, it's much worse than it would have been had they called the police. The police did the proper investigation job that the Channel 10 lawyers have done. And he gets charged and tried and found guilty or not guilty, depending on the evidence, rather than this continual protection. Channel 7, of course, have finally disclosed that the bit of accommodation that they supplied him for the exclusive interview he did with them was a 12-month rent in Sydney's northern beaches, which is somewhere between $130,000 and $200,000 a year, depending on what you're renting and where you're renting it and how he's going to afford that at the end of the 12 months. I don't know whether he's just using it as the world's best Airbnb or whether... He does have something lined up, uh, whether moving out of the country back to America where he has connections or whether he is going to try and keep making a career in Australia. And aside from all the dramas from this defamation case, it's making the Australian Federal Police look pretty bad. The sexual assault trial in Canberra was a badly botched case. There were so many unexplained events, so many lost pieces of evidence video recordings from security not being available, computer disks going missing. And despite all of that, the jury was on the verge of convicting Bruce Lerman on the charge of sexual assault. And we believe that it was 11 out of the 12 jurors that were convinced about his guilt. And then the jury was supposedly contaminated by some papers in the jury room that probably no one actually saw. And there were just a lot of weird things about these cases. And I don't want to sound like a conspiracy theorist, but Bruce Lerman, as you mentioned before, is a nobody. Why would the Australian Federal Police or Seven West Media or any other benefactor want to protect him legally and bankroll his case? And it's just hard to understand, but I don't think that Bruce Lerman will be so lucky in this defamation case, but it's a civil case, not a criminal case. And if you've got someone else paying all of the bills for you, well, it doesn't really matter what the outcome is. It doesn't matter to you, but it matters to the people paying. And I imagine after his testimony, there were a lot of dented walls and desks from people pounding their fists and head into them with frustration. And Brittany Higgins has given, from what I've seen, and I haven't seen all of it yet, but from what I've seen, she gave consistent, clear, non-contradictory evidence that rang true, which... Bruce Lerman, frankly, did not. Now, there's a lot of pressure and your memory can do funny things and the pressure to that he'd be under in terms of we're supplying four expensive barristers to you plus a team of solicitors plus accommodation is coming. So you're under a lot of pressure to do this right. Might make your brain go a bit funny. But Brittany Higgins is under a whole lot of pressure too. Her reputation is on the line. There are those who say that she made the whole thing up and that nothing happened. It's clear something happened and it's clear something very bad happened. The abuse she's received, the questions she's received, the awful treatment she's received because she did speak out is an immense amount of pressure too. Yet she's told what so far essentially seems to be the truth. She has misremembered stuff, but nothing of consequence. 
and she's acknowledged, you know, I don't quite remember what was said. I saw a glimpse of something and I heard her say, I wasn't sure of the timeline. I'd stepped out of the room and sort of came back in. And when I looked at the text we sent, I'd realized that the timeline, as I remembered it, was incorrect. But this is completely consistent with witness testimony. Courts really hate witness testimony because it's so hard to untangle. Compared to Bruce Lerman's, oh, yes, I told the police this and I told the police that. Oh, no, I told them something else. Oh, I'll, actually, I did tell them the first thing, but I meant the other thing. It's a totally different thing. Brittany Higgins has been an impressive witness. No question. Bruce Lerman hasn't. What the end game of this, except to, I guess, remove Bruce Lerman, keep the culture wars going for a little bit. And it's a shame that I don't know that Brittany Higgins will ever see legal justice, but it seems that she's at least going to see some natural justice. There's been a few more other events in Parliament this week and the Secretary of Home Affairs, Michael Pizzullo, he's been sacked for misconduct and breaching public service rules and the Labor government did want to remove Pizzullo but wanted to do it according to the rules and to make it seem like they weren't the ones removing him. But just a few weeks ago, the government did say that it was formally committed to an open merit-based selection process and doing this to improve transparency and consistency for how departmental secretaries are selected. But now they've gone ahead and appointed Stephanie Foster as the Secretary of Home Affairs, and she has been the Deputy Secretary and was the one who was caught winking at Senator Simon Birmingham during Senate estimate hearings and was actually part of the Prime Minister and Cabinet deliberations for Scott Morrison to take on those secret ministries when he was the Prime Minister. And here's what former Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull had to say about this back in August last year. This is one of the most appalling uh, things I've ever heard in our federal government. I mean, the idea that a Prime Minister would be sworn in to other ministries secretly uh, is incredible. I'm, I'm, I'm astonished that Morrison thought he could do it. I'm astonished that Prime Minister and Cabinet went along with it. That's the department. And I'm even more astonished that the Governor-General was party to it. I mean, this is sinister stuff. And he also wrote, the Prime Minister and Cabinet officials, including Stephanie Foster, must have known that this was utterly without precedent and wrong. And Stephanie Foster was also criticised in the report in The Secret Ministries, produced by former High Court Judge Virginia Bell. So you would think that this would be the perfect opportunity to appoint someone according to that open merit-based selection system that you just announced a few weeks ago, but then going on to appoint someone tarnished by their involvement with the previous government, that just doesn't make any sense. I'm guessing, and I don't know, and I, I make no implication of impropriety, uh, I'm guessing that some deal has been done and that this was a foregone conclusion that they've done through, hopefully through gritted teeth. I'm also guessing that her experience is something that the government desires while we head into a period of economic instability, but it still doesn't make a lot of sense. I don't believe that in a country of 20 million people that 
she's the best candidate and in a public service of around a million people. And okay, we can narrow it down to probably 200 people when you look at people with possibly appropriate corporate experience and other senior public servants. It says if Labor is trying to get rid of all the bad decisions in the middle of their term so they can do the John Howard thing and build up to a, a good approval rating by the end of the electoral term so they can come back in and maintain their position. I'm not quite sure that a lot of the people they've annoyed are going to come back because there's been some big, this isn't slight changes to certain superannuations that don't affect that many people. This is stuff that people voted to change. And I know that for all the people who say I'm never voting Labor again, 50% of them will vote Labor at the next, or at least 50% will vote Labor at the next election. And they feel it genuinely now, but as things improve, they'll slowly go back. But there's a lot of people there who won't vote Labor again, who have felt burnt too many times. And the people expected not just better than the last government, but a better government altogether. Oh, well, someone pointed out on social media that Anthony Albanese has had COVID twice and he might be suffering from a little bit of brain fog over this sort of decision. But this is just a strange and weird decision. Stephanie Foster was actually acting in the position. So the government could have taken its time and chosen someone else or at least gone through the process of choosing someone else and making a clean break with the past. And the Labor government does have this commitment to not interfering with the public service, but appointing people is not interference. It's just appointing the best people for these positions. And whatever the case is, the Liberal Party, whenever they're in government, they put in their own people, they interfere, they bend the public service to suit themselves. And the, essentially, the government can interfere in the public service without interfering in the public service, if you know what I mean. But you get people that are compatible with your government perspective into these positions. And I'm not suggesting nepotism, but you don't appoint people who might be politically compromised. And if you've just committed to an open merit system and then at your first opportunity, you do the opposite, well, that's just not much of a commitment to these ideals that you've introduced. And prime ministers do need to work the public service towards an open merit system and getting the best people possible. And if you've got all of these people that were appointed by the previous government because of favours and outside of the merit-based system, well, you just have to rectify that. And yes, there has to be a balance between the government and the public service, but the government has to be supreme. And if the government felt that Stephanie Foster was the best choice to be the Secretary of the Home Affairs Department, they still should have gone through the process of open merit, even if it was to keep that perception of an open merit system. And even better, just go through the full open merit system properly and see what comes up. That would have been a better way of doing it, especially if that's what was actually promised. The number of people I know, and I'm sure you know them too, Eddie, who've acted in a job for two or three years and then have had to go through the humiliation of a job interview to get the job permanently. But for those who weren't, who then didn't end up getting the job for whatever reason, so it was a double humiliation. Some people decide they can't handle and don't go for the job even though they should have got it. I believe that some parts of the public service have bought in that if you're in the job for so long, it's it's a softer experience than having the job fully advertised, go through the interview process. Again, the standards to do that 
are rigorous, as, as they should be. But it's a bit of a slap in the face to those people who basically had to fight for their job to have Stephanie Foster waltz into it and be on $913,000 a year or whatever it is. Now, it's possible that she winked at Birmingham because they'd been working closely together and they had built up a bit of a rapport and she will serve the current government just as tenaciously and as positively as the last one. And I hope that's the truth. And a little bit of winking as well. And that she can feel close enough to whoever the minister is that they can have those little bits of platonically intimate moments. Back in this, I think for the 66 election, Arthur Colwell did a speech somewhere where he said, and the first thing we will do is we will remove the public service of dangerous communists like Dr. Coombs. And this gets reported and he gets straight on the phone to Nugget Coombs and says, Nugget, don't listen to that bullshit I said in the speech. That was just for votes. We will need you. And so there may be a bit of that in it too, that looking at it from the outside, we have completely the wrong perception of of her. But again, having to have her go through an interview, there'd still be the howls. You'd still have that, but at least there'd be documentation. At least there'd be a relatively clear, you know, why did she get it over equally qualified candidate from a state government or from overseas well there's these reasons that reason. okay well still not happy but what can you do you know and the ship of state takes a while to turn around too i think we should acknowledge that but again i wish they had thought about it a bit more before just walking us straight into the job this is new politics one of the top 10 australian politics and news commentary audio programs You can listen to us on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, Amazon Music, and you can find us at newpolitics.com.au, and you can contribute and support New Politics on Substack and Patreon. The Prime Minister is now as unpopular as the Leader of the Opposition, Peter Dutton, according to the latest opinion polls, but he is still preferred Prime Minister by a wide margin. And last week we reported that opinion polls don't mean very much this far out from an election, but that doesn't mean that we can't talk about them. And of course that doesn't mean that the media won't talk about it as well. And there was a headline article in the Sydney Morning Herald screaming out three signs of decay in the Albanese government. And whatever people might think about the Labor government, it has to be pointed out that in opinion polls, they're around 50-50. And and in the most recent Morgan poll released during the week, support for Labor went back up to 52.5% of the two-party preferred vote. But this Labor government has only been in office for 18 months. Governments of any persuasion are not going to be in decay after just 18 months, maybe five or six years, two or three terms, but just not after 18 months. And the three signs of decay, according to the Sydney Morning Herald, which is owned by Nine Media and chaired by former Liberal government treasurer Peter Costello, the first one is policy inertia. And the Herald has been suggesting that the Labor government is not offering anything for the future. Well, 
They're just at the halfway point of their first term, still trying to bed down what they promised to do for this first term. And the second issue is a lack of preparation and poor response to events. And they cite the recent High Court case ruling on unlawful immigration detention, which overturned a ruling from 20 years ago. And the third sign of decay, according to the Sydney Morning Herald, is isolated leadership. And apparently there's also rumblings of discontent within the Labor backbench. And funnily enough, these are all the talking points mentioned by Peter Dutton. There's no evidence for any of this. These are just opinions of a journalist and filled with quotes from unnamed sources. And as we've mentioned quite a few times before, unnamed sources is usually a very good sign that the quotes have been made up. And it's obvious that the Labor government is not in the same position that it was in several months ago. And there's a lot of pressures on government at the moment. But is it fair to say that it's a government of decay? I think it's fair to say it's a government that has disappointed people, in some cases justifiably so, in in other cases not so much. It's still a fairly mature government. I still feel a lot easier knowing that it's Penny Wong going overseas to represent Australia than it is Maurice Payne or whoever it was before Maurice Payne or whoever it was before that person. I still feel a bit easier that it's Anthony Albanese representing the country and not Tony Abbott or Scott Morrison. The party seems fairly stable compared to under the Rudd and Gillard years where it was riven by division, where it was riven by insecurity, where it was riven by people who weren't a tenth of what the Prime Minister was, who thought they were either his or her equals. There weren't even a tenth of that. Anthony Albanese doesn't have these problems. I noticed James Campbell tried to suggest that Penny Wong was going to stand down. The people who tend to have their finger on the pulse of rumours said this is the first time anyone's ever heard of this and Penny Wong wouldn't just announce it and go, that she would make sure there was some kind of handover to whoever would take over the job, that she would discuss it with the Prime Minister to make sure that there wasn't a factional battle necessarily, or if there was going to be a factional battle, who was going to win the factional battle so that she could hand over the job and finish off all the major things that she was going to do. And that seems to me to be fairly consistent with what Penny Wong might do. It shows the preferred prime minister. It doesn't seem to me to be a very meaningful metric and and never has. And I don't know to say that Anthony Albanese is as unpopular as Peter Dutton. I don't think the polls are quite reflecting the true. And I'm not going to say, you know, Anthony Albanese has been the greatest prime minister ever and he's got 100% support and the polls are lying. I'm certainly not saying that. But I think his unpopularity is a different type. It's not the deep-seated loathing that Dutton has in the community. I think it's always the case that governments do want to have good opinion polls all the time if they can, but this isn't what drives governments. And, you know, they do look at the polls despite what they publicly say, and they're just like any other political junkie. They look at the polls, they analyse them and try and interpret what they mean. But this is all done over breakfast, and then they go off and do the work that they need to do in their parliamentary offices or in their electorates. But this is all starting to be ramped up in the media, that the government is in a world of pain, That was from the ABC. Nine Media is pushing all of these stories about problems being discussed by the backbench. And I can tell you now, you don't get a disgruntled backbench for a new government after just 18 months. All the cabinet positions have been filled and new MPs generally don't get a look in for a cabinet position until the second term of government. Now, 
If you told me that there's a whole collection of disgruntled backbenchers midway through the second term of a government or a third term, I'd believe that. And that's when a government starts to age. MPs feel that they should have received a cabinet position by now or should have had more favourable treatment for some of the favours that they've given out. And that's when you get the unhappy backbenchers. But 18 months in... Yeah, and the other thing is that they've also got the memory of what it's like to be in opposition. That's a very strong memory just from 18 months ago, and they just don't want to ever go back there. And News Corporation was also suggesting that the Prime Minister is likely to be rolled before Peter Dutton is, and they ignore the fact that 75% of caucus needs to support a leadership spill within the Labor government, which is pretty much impossible. But if you do want to have a look at a decaying government, well, you just look at the final years of New South Wales Labor between 2007 and 2011, or the final years of the New South Wales Coalition government up until 2023, or the final term of John Howard after 2004, final couple of years of federal Labor in 2012 and 13, or the mayhem of the coalition between 2016 and 2022. That's what a decay in government looks like. And I just don't think we're anywhere near that stage for the Albanese government. Absolutely not. And looking at Kevin Rudd, who was still on 60% popularity, but because he'd been on 72%, they panicked, knifed him. Now, I know that there were a whole lot of other reasons there. And I think Anthony Albanese is probably a much easier person to work with in some ways than Kevin Rudd can be. I think Anthony Albanese has a much, as I pointed out before, a much more stable party to work with. He doesn't have the massive egos who were snubbed, who you know were lucky to have any kind of pre-selection at all. I think really the pro-liberal media is grasping at straws, trying to destabilise a government that is doing things that annoy the government space, but in fact the pro-liberal media approval, but they can't have that. <laughs> so they're, they're looking for things that they can be righteously unhappy with, and I think it's that simple. And there was also a deal between the Labor government and the Australian Greens to amend the Murray-Darling Basin plan and have an additional 450 gigalitres flowing back into the basin and is making the basin more sustainable and more equitable for everyone, not just for the hand-picked communities and the industries that were previously chosen by the Liberal and National parties, as well as corrupt licence deals that saw water buybacks and payments made to secret entities in the Cayman Islands. And hello to Angus Taylor and all of his staff. I hope they're listening and enjoying the program. So this is one step in protecting environmental outcomes, and it's a sign of some of the good things that can be achieved when the Labor government and the Australian Greens collaborate to achieve better outcomes. Government is the art of the possible. If you have to make a deal with the Greens, then great. The Greens seem to have learned from their mistakes. Most of their mistakes were getting lumped with the blame for housing. They seem to have settled down a little bit and realised that something is better than nothing and that productive work with the government will get them a lot further than blocking. Now, again, I'm not saying that the Green shouldn't block and I'm not saying that the Green shouldn't have their own policy and I'm not saying that the Green shouldn't be a, a party that is independent, made up of independent thinking and policies, etc. But I am saying that there seems to be a bit more productive work coming through and that they've learned a little bit about the art of government. 
and long may they thrive and and keep growing, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. I think the government also has learned to work with the Greens, and I think that's an important thing too. Like we always look at the junior half of the partnership learning to work with the senior half, but I think the senior half of the partnership also has to learn how to work with the junior half. And I think that's happened. And I think both sides should be commended for growing up and learning to live with each other. And I think this is a good plan. Here's the Minister for Environment, Tanya Plibersek. What we're doing with our Restoring Our Rivers Bill is providing more time to deliver on the plan as it is now, more money to make sure that we've got money there for additional projects that are water-saving projects, more money for structural adjustment should it be necessary. We're also delivering more accountability to make sure that the plan actually is delivered. Uh, and, of course, more options. I mean, we want to do on-farm efficiency measures, off-farm efficiency measures. We're looking at land and water purchases. We're looking at a whole range of things to make sure that we deliver the Murray-Darling Basin Plan in full. And the Australian Green spokesperson, Senator Sarah Hanson-Young. We've really gone in hard with our negotiations with the government and through goodwill and cooperation, we've managed to really strengthen this piece of legislation. It now will deliver real environmental water for the river system. It will deliver real outcomes for First Nations communities, including $100 million for cultural flows and for the first time acknowledging them in the objects of the Act and putting in place an independent audit of water across the basin so that we can try to put some integrity back in the system. We've had a decade of water theft, of rotting, of deep mistrust with how the Murray-Darling plan has been carried out. An independent audit will help get the plan back on track and really get those environmental flows to where they're needed most. And we sent out a big cheerio to Angus Taylor before. We should have also said hello to Barnaby Joyce as well, so big apologies for that. But here's a little reminder from Tanya Plibersek in Parliament about the behaviour of the previous government. Those opposite the National Party are perfectly happy for anyone to buy water other than the Australian government to protect the environment. They're very happy for foreign companies to buy water. In fact, in fact... More water is owned by foreign companies than is owned by the Commonwealth Environment Water Holder. They're very happy to sell water. When the member for New England was the water minister, he was happy to buy water. He bought $80 million worth of water from a company set up in the Cayman Islands by the Shadow Treasury. So they don't mind mind water buybacks. The Murray-Darling Basin has been exploited by farmers and it's got an environmentally unsustainable cotton industry in the region and all of this just had to be addressed. And of course the National Party attacked this announcement without clearly articulating what the issue is, but this just continues their negativity and all the negativity coming from the coalition. Everything's a problem, everything is negative. Inflation is coming down. Oh, hang on, it's not coming down quickly enough. Wages are rising. Oh, they're not rising quickly enough. More water in the Murray-Darling Basin for environmental flows. Oh, that's not good for farmers, again, without explaining why. And it was unusual to see the Greens and Labor making a joint announcement. And 
Personally, I think that there should be more of this. And maybe both of these sides might be thinking that it's mutually beneficial for both the Australian Greens and for the Labor government to work together on some of these issues. And bearing in mind that the Australian Greens did pick up two seats from the LNP in Queensland at the last election, and there might be more to come. And there is a bit of thinking that while Queensland might be a bit of a graveyard for the Federal Labor Party, it might be less of a graveyard for the Australian Greens. It's probably more like a morgue. And they might get some more political success at the next federal election in Queensland. But there was a seismic shift at the 2022 federal election. And that was a shift away from the Liberal Party and a loss of many of their seats. But there could be another seismic shift in the 2025 election where there's a shift away from the Liberal Party and the Labor Party, and more towards the Australian Greens and independents. And I think we're still a long way from that position, but it does create quite an interesting dynamic leading up to the next federal election. I'm not sure as far away from it as you might think, but it won't be the next election, although we'll still see the change in the next election. But within four elections, we may not have a Liberal Party, we may not have a Labor Party, unless things change radically within both parties. And that could happen. That's what the Liberal Party usually does. It resets itself and it renames itself. As she said, as the Labor Party, there's usually some kind of split and the disaffected side go off and form another party. And that may happen. Although at the moment, I don't know who the disaffected side of the late, maybe some of the left disillusioned with deals with mining. But again, I don't want to be James Campbell and say, oh, this is definitely going to happen. I'm just thinking very quickly as to who this might be. And of course, it may not happen at all. But it's worth considering that both major parties are based on philosophies that are over 100 years old and the world has changed incredibly in that time. So a change is coming, I think. That's it for this episode of New Politics. Thanks for listening in. And if you'd like to support our style of journalism and commentary, please make a donation at our website at newpolitics.com.au. We don't beg, plead, beseech or gaslight you about journalism coming to an end. We just keep it very simple. If you like what we do, please send some support our way. It keeps our commitment to independent journalism ticking along. I'm Eddie Djokovic. Thanks for listening in and it's goodbye to our listeners. I'm David Lewis. We'll see you next time.